we stand in the presence of God's word. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons. The whole city was gathered around the door, and he cured many who were sick with various diseases. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. And he answered, Let us go on to the neighboring town, so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that's what I came to do. A leper came to him, begging him, kneeling. He said to him, If you choose, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I do choose. Be clean. This is the word of the Lord. When I'd completed my undergraduate degree and then three years of seminary, I was ordained and the bishop sent me to Houston. I'd grown up in a small town that had a 60-bed hospital. And suddenly I was in a city that was known around the world for some of its great doctors, some of its great hospitals. MD Anderson Hospital, great cancer research center. Uh, People from across the United States would write to us or call us at the First United Methodist Church of Houston. Even if they'd never been to Houston, they assumed there was a First Methodist Church. And they would call us and write to us and say, would you go see my grandfather, my grandmother, my niece, my nephew, my aunt, my uncle. And we went, of course. Methodist Hospital, 1,400 beds, huge. Dr. Michael DeBakey, known all over the world for the work he was doing in heart surgery. And right across the street, Dr. Denton Cooley, equally famous at St. Luke's Episcopal Hospital. People came across the country being flown in or being driven in to these great physicians and these great hospitals. You and I know about a fairly small place called Rochester, Minnesota because of the Mayo Clinic. We know about Topeka because of Menninger's Clinic. Down in Texas, we know about Temple, Texas because of the Scott White Clinic down there and so on. People will go a long way if they believe there is healing. Certainly great churches of the world, historic sites where people believe others have been healed. Gail and I have been to Lourdes, we've been to Fatima, uh, we've been to Shestakova in Poland to see the crutches hanging on the walls, uh, back braces and so on. People who've been healed there, they said. So when word got out that Jesus was a healer, they came. Came from everywhere. They went on into the night that Saturday night. The Sabbath was over and that was okay when the sun went down to carry people to work, if you would, and they brought him. They just lined up at the door there after he had healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law and this healing went on and on into the night. Let's take a look at this story for today that Mark tells us. Number one, everybody's sick sometime. Everybody's sick sometime, but some more than others. And certainly we believe that Jesus was showing us again how God cares about sick people. Sick of body, sick of heart, sick of mind, sick of spirit, soul sick. God cares. Really does care. Julia Baird wrote a column, whole page in Newsweek magazine a few weeks ago. 
saying that today in America we've sort of got compassion fatigue. She said in 2007, Americans were asked across the country, do you think the government ought to do more for poor people? 54%, yeah, they thought so. Two years later, only 48%. 52% said no, no more. Because often the image people have today of the poor is that they obese, perhaps, lazy, not working, using food stamps, not contributing. That hasn't always been the case, of course. Uh, Julia Baird says that we should have known a person named Dorothea Lang. She was a young woman back in the Great Depression, the 1930s. Uh, she was a teenager 25 years before the polio vaccine and she had polio and for the rest of her life would have one of those horrible braces on one of her legs and have to get along with the aid of a crutch when most women stayed pretty close to home back in the 30s she put a scarf over her head took her crutch and the brace on her leg got in an old car and started out to take pictures of poor people in America she came to Oklahoma in the Dust Bowl went down to Texas where they were having equally difficult time, followed the people going all the way to California, took pictures, pictures, pictures. She sold them to magazines and newspapers across the country. And Julia Baird was saying, look into the eyes of these people whose pictures she took. You see courage and hope and dignity. Courage and hope and dignity. Our scholars believe that Jesus and his family were very poor. In that first century of the common era, if a family had lost its land, then it was dependent on finding work every day so that the family could eat that night. That Jesus and his family seemed to have had no land, but they had to work, hoping there was work so they could get paid a denarius and have something to feed the family at night. So the Bible, the four Gospels, are very clear that Jesus had great compassion for the poor, for the sick, for the needy. Okay. Number two. So they brought them to him in great numbers, and he reached out his hand and touched them. You know that lepers were considered unclean, unclean. The law was that if a person had leprosy, he or she had to live outside the inhabited areas. And any person that might approach was supposed to be able to recognize a leper. They were to wear torn clothes. They were to look disheveled. And if someone did not recognize all the warning signs, the leper was to, it says literally, put the hand to the lip like this and say, unclean, unclean. It's in the book of Leviticus. Go away. Do not touch. One was brazen enough to approach Jesus, fall down on his knees before him and say, I believe if you want to, you could make me well. I want to be well. I want to. There's a new biography out on the Queen Mum of England. Uh, Gail and I have had the opportunity of being in England uh, several different times. And, and this wonderful woman was much beloved in England. There was always pictures and articles about the Queen Mum. Now there's a new biography written by a fellow named Samuel Smallcross. Uh, a thousand pages long, this biography, but she lived 102 years, you recall. The mother of Queen Elizabeth II, who reigns now. In this biography, Smallcross reminds us that the Queen Mum did not have royal blood. But no one really expected her ever to be queen. They already had a king. 
And then in 1937, he abdicated the throne to marry a divorced American woman. And suddenly, the queen mum became the queen. And two years later, the bombing started in London. Just two years later, they say in the biography, Smallcross says, she was there. Every morning after the bombs fell, she was there, out in the streets, encouraging those who were cleaning up, encouraging those who were rebuilding, in the hospitals, day after day after day, an encouraging kind word. A woman of strength and of dignity. In the 60s, she was already getting along in years by that time, and she was on the board of trustees of the university in Dundee in Scotland. She went up for a board meeting, and they were experiencing in Scotland and England what we were experiencing over here, all the student unrest of the mid and late 60s. And as her entourage started through the streets of Dundee, she had her little crown on, the whole thing, she was all gussied up for this meeting. Students lined the way, screaming and yelling, and for some reason throwing rolls of toilet tissue at the entourage. And suddenly, she tapped the driver on the shoulder and told him to stop. He stopped the car, and she sat there and watched. She saw one young man throw his roll of toilet tissue. She opened the door and got out walked over and picked up that roll of toilet tissue and walked straight to him on the sidewalk and said, Was this yours? And would you deal with it, please? She said. And he dealt with it, and everybody got quiet, and all stood in reverence and awe as she got back in her car and went on to the board meeting at the university. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have her visit you in the hospital? You see, she knew what hurt and pain really were all about because she lost her brother in World War I. When finally the palace in London was bombed, she said, Oh, finally, I can face the East Enders who've been bombed every night. Now they know, I know what that feels like. To have the Queen come and speak to you at your bed. But this story from Mark is... But God Almighty comes to your bed. When I was a young preacher, I thought I need to rush to the hospital and beg God to come and help whoever it was I was visiting. I still go to the hospital, Dr. Tankersley, more than any of the rest of us in the hospitals. But Bill and Art begging God to come, we're just acknowledging he got there before we did. But God was already there when we walked in the door. We just acknowledge in praying with those whom we love so very much that God was already here and we know he's here right now nobody caring more nobody loving better than God number three Mark is very clear as he tells this story that when it was still very dark and he means by that of course sun's not rising sun's not rising that darkest part of the night Jesus crawls out of the bed in Capernaum and goes out to a desert place he says desert place We've been to Capernaum five times. There's no desert at Capernaum. There is no desert at Capernaum. Nearest desert 90 miles away. So what is Mark saying? We Hebrew people, we Israelis have met our God in the desert. When we've gone to those deserted places, God is there. God is always there in the deserted places. You can count on that. God's in the deserted places. Meet him there.
We've all had Haiti on our minds, I hope and pray. You were wonderful the other day when just, you know, a few days after we said, if you have anything you'd like to put in a basket, we will send it to our Methodist representatives in Haiti. Every dollar will go to meet human need. You put $15,000 in the baskets. Methodists across America were given the opportunity, more than a million dollars that day, United Methodist in this country. We'd already lost two of our own down there. We've had an ongoing presence in Haiti, the United Methodist Church. We at Boston Avenue have sent several different volunteer mission teams into Haiti in the past. And we had two of our executives check into the hotel five minutes before the quake. They had taken their keys, had gone to their rooms. Hotel fell down on them. They died. Two of them died. We've been there, we United Methodists, and your million dollars got there right from the start. Did you know that of all the agencies that rushed into New Orleans when Katrina hit, one of the first on the ground was the Methodist, and the only one still there today, United Methodist. Of all the faith communities, the United Methodists are still in New Orleans. Well, there was an article in your United Methodist Reporter. I hope you read that every week. Our Sherry Goodwin serves on the board, is chair of the board down there. They do good work. The Reverend Daniel Dick. Conference Program Director of United Methodists in Wisconsin wrote the other day in the paper, our paper, that he and a group had been to Haiti before the earthquake. They had been there. And he said, we wanted our teenagers to experience the poverty in Haiti. Do you know that more than half the population of Haiti lives on less than a dollar a day? A dollar a day, less fewer than $30 a month per person, more than half of them. Well, he said, we were there, we had dentists, we had physicians with us from Wisconsin. It was amazing, he said. People lined up, our medical people worked into the night, dark, with flashlights and car headlights were trying to keep helping these people. We couldn't do major things, but we could extract teeth if they had serious infection. We could remove festered splinters. We could lance a, a boil and put a stitch or two in it. They came into the night. I saw our teenagers with some of the Haitian children. They couldn't speak each other's language, but our teenagers had got all these precious black children in, in a circle, and they started teaching them the rhythm game. Didn't take them two minutes. They were all doing the rhythm game and having such a good time. Our teenagers brought a huge big bucket of used tennis balls, and they started tossing these tennis balls out to these precious children, and they had such a good time. He said we were there for four days, and they were enjoying those tennis balls. We had one person who could make balloon animals, you know, when you blow them up and twist them into all kinds. Of, the Haitian children loved them, absolutely loved them. They had such a good time. As one little boy said that the whole time we were there, he kept hanging around, and if any one of our adults ever sat down, he crawled up in their lap. He just crawled up in the lap. Woman, man, didn't matter at all. He just crawled. He just wanted somebody to hold him. He just wanted somebody to hold him. The compassion of Jesus Christ. Yet he's out there in a deserted place asking God, Is this what I'm supposed to do? Work into the night, touching all the sick day after day? And the answer was, No. Nope. When Simon and others got there that morning, you can tell they're fussing at him. Where have you been? Everybody's looking for you. I'm not going back to Capernaum to heal them. I'm going on to that village and that village and that village to preach.
That's why I came. The preacher. Dr. Kroll read to you such a great passage a few minutes ago, and it was about Paul's witness to the importance of preaching. Preaching. A few weeks ago, I left my house on Sunday morning. I'm listening to NPR radio as I go along. I'm rehearsing the sermon in my mind. Point one, illustration, point two, illustration, point three, you know. And suddenly I'm hearing somebody saying, you know, preaching... And my ears perked up. You don't hear a lot about preaching on NPR. Preaching is sort of like what Robert Louis Stevenson experienced when he was a little boy. And I perked up again. And the next day, I Googled that to see what that was all about, Robert Louis Stevenson. Preaching is sort of like Robert Louis Stevenson's experience with the lamplighter. Remember, he was a sickly child. He really was a sickly child. Back at a time where they didn't know how to deal with so many childhood illnesses, and so he spent long periods of time by himself. And late one evening, just as it was getting dark, the nanny came in to check on him, and he had crawled out of bed and was standing at the window. And she walked over and said, What you looking at? And when she peeked out the window, she could see the lamplighter. This was before electric lights, when they all come on at a certain time. The only lamps in this town were gas, and they had to be lighted one at a time. And here he was, the old lamplighter going down the street, lighting one after the other. And Robert Louis Stevenson said, he's punching holes in the dark. Amen.